It's time to be all that you can be in 23, starting with a cold plunge to get a natural boost in energy. Focus, discipline, and resilience. The plunge can provide you with all that brilliance. This is the ultimate home cold water therapy experience. A sleek, slick, custom-designed unit that gives you ready access to a cold bath of clean, filtered, circulating water that you can set to your desired temperature. Don't fool around lugging bags of ice from the supermarket for once-in-a-while action. Get the plunge so you will actually stick with your protocol and enjoy it. Visit at thecoldplunge.com to learn all about this sensational product and the benefits of therapeutic cold water exposure. They'll deliver a plunge to your home for free, and then you have easy, simple setup, regular plug-in, and you're off and running. I set mine to 39. I don't spend a lot of time, but the experience is prime, and I'm focused and energized for a fantastic day and more resilient against all other forms of stress in life. Take the plunge, people, and also check out their new Rebounder mini trampoline to pair with plunging and optimize lymphatic function. It's all at thecoldplunge.com, and you can't lose with their generous 30-day money-back guarantee and special discount for BRAD podcast listeners using the code BRAD, thecoldplunge.com. Welcome to the Be Rad Podcast. It's Brad Kearns. These are our sponsors. Male Optimization Formula with Organs. Brad's Macadamia Masterpiece. Perfect Keto Ketone Supplements. Carol Fit Stationary Bike. Organifi Superfood. Viore Clothing. And Let's Get Check.com Home Testing. And please visit the BradKearns.com shop page for my personal selection of favorite products for health, fitness, and peak performance with great discounts offers and now here we go with the show mofo every time i paddleboard i'm like gosh this is such a good workout and so how could we create something that kind of mimics that motion that was simple easy to use and that's kind of where that first spark for 360 came and it grew into to what you have now the guys that could stay hungry even the ones that weren't necessarily the most talented they ended up in my opinion being the best players I'm really good at being consistent with training and just physical things. I've really been trying to take that same intensity and apply it to creating, whether it be content, products, whatever. Hi, everyone. It's time to talk to Dan the Monkey Man. That's right. His name is Dan Vinson, founder, operator of the interesting fitness entity known as Monkey, M-O-N-K-I-I. They design high-quality fitness tools so you can get stronger, lose weight, and be wild all from home. And he promotes living this wild ancestral lifestyle. It's a really cool story. It goes in a lot of different directions. We talk about his athletic background, where he was a high-level high school athlete at the legendary uh, program of De La Salle in Northern California, the greatest high school football team ever with the longest winning streak. He was a lacrosse player and he had a long and interesting journey from scrub walk-on at Georgetown University to earning his way into a scholarship and a starting spot uh, at the end of his college journey. And we talked a lot about some mindset and mentality aspects of 
you know, fighting through things and doing things for the right reasons for the passion. And Dan has extended that, uh, that fitness mentality, that competitive intensity, that desire to pursue and achieve goals all the way into his adult life and his business operation as well as his adventures. So we talk about very interestingly, his uh, climbing of El Capitan, a little bit of a different journey than we're familiar with, with Alex Honnold uh, free soloing the thing in a few hours. But when you actually want to climb it uh, the, the the proper way, the safe way with the ropes and all that stuff, it can take several days. And he talks about a couple failed attempts and how they finally succeeded. Uh, also talking about the uh, double crossing of the Grand Canyon and then into his basic daily routine, which is a beautiful story, uh, especially he and the millennials age group, mid-30s, live in this beautiful dream life that's so different from uh, our generation's past, where you were kind of on these uh, these treadmills that were pretty narrow in scope, where you went to college, got a degree, got your resume going, had a couple crappy jobs, got a better job, uh, maybe went into the eventual nine-to-five drab uh, existence. And he's out there uh, living this nice life in the wilderness and also running a proper business. And the interesting story of how uh, Monkey got started, I think you'll like. They went over to Kickstarter, raised millions of dollars from faithful, interested people that said, yeah, I'll give you guys a shot. And then they came up with this really cool fitness equipment. Uh, he's nicely enough sent me uh, his 360 ball, which is an amazing invention. And you can do so many things right there at home, strapping it over a door. So we talk about the transitions in the fitness uh, mindset and the fitness industry, going from this no pain, no gain, gym mentality, group exercise mentality, to just integrating fitness into your daily life. And I think that's what his operation, his movement at Monkey and the Live Wild or Die podcast is all about. So here we go with Dan Vinson. Enjoy. Dan Vinson, the monkey man. We are on and we got a lot to talk about. We had a great uh, warm-up show with me appearing on on your podcast. So um, now we're going to turn the tables and uh, hear what this whole exciting monkey monkey lifestyle is all about. Thanks, Brad. I'm uh, glad to be have you driving now. So stoked to continue the conversation. Yeah, so tell me about the podcast and then the 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 business that you guys have been uh, building, the the community, and then I also want to get into your background and your athletic achievements and all that stuff. But um, yeah, let's let's welcome welcome listeners to the the monkey world. Well, thank you for having me. No, we uh, so we're we're monkey, and the podcast is called Live Wild or Die. And I essentially started because I was listening to so many podcasts. I was like, well, I can. I can do that. It's a lot harder than I originally thought. And I actually had a radio show in college. It was called The Grizzly Show. I was really into like backpacking and just the outdoors and all that stuff. So it was just me and some buddies joking around for a few hours once a week. But so I kind of had those roots that I wanted to bring back out. And it's been, it's been so much fun. Just a lot of the monkeys, you know, we get to talk and just talk about kind of the culture around our company and products and training and, you know, stoicism and all these other ancillary things, nutrition that, you know, you don't, most brands and companies, you don't get to speak directly like that to your customers unless it's a medium like a podcast. So it's been awesome. I love it. And I just, I love consuming them as well. So it's, um, it's been fun to be in that scene and get to talk to folks like you. 
And then Monkey, we launched this via Kickstarter. M-O-N-K-I-I, people. M-O-N-K-I-I. Had to spell it different. But uh, yeah, Monkey, our website's monkey.co. And we launched on Kickstarter 2014. And we raised, I think it was like $111,000 the first time. And that was for the Monkey Bars original, which are these guys here, which we essentially like hand assembled these things. I still have scars actually from twisting all the caps together. So, you know, and to launch the product, we, we kind of forced our friends and families to back the campaign because the way Kickstarter works is it's essentially like pre-sales. So you put up a project, you have reward levels If people back at a certain reward level, they'll get that physical good. At least that's how we did it. And uh, so we did our first one in 2014. We did another campaign for Monkey Bars 2 in 2016. That did a million dollars. And then we released Pocket Monkey in 2017. That did a million. And we did 360 in 2019. That, did, that was our biggest campaign ever. And then I'm standing on the stoic gym for your feet right now. And we just finished that campaign. That was like 750-ish. And um, yeah, so it's been really fun. It's such a cool medium and platform to just kind of invent and explore ideas and work with this community that's so engaged and excited that it's, um, we're just, we're fortunate to live in a time where that's possible. Yeah, she's, I, I barely knew about this thing. I'm, I'm a little bit aware of how it works now, but when you're saying that you raise this much money or that much money uh, and it's a pre-sale, so that means that you just sold a, a, a million dollars worth of your 360 ball, for example. And so then you're going to go make them and everyone's going to get one. But it's, it's great. It takes a little bit of the risk out. And also, I'm sure the startup costs to create a fitness device are, are phenomenal. And then, you, you know, gen, the general model is you're going to cross your fingers and hope you sell one, even though there's 2,000 in your garage. That's a tough way to, to break in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's not, it's not 100% risk free, but it's like, you know, instead of buying a million dollars worth of product up front, you can invest, you know, a relatively small amount into this campaign. And like, if it, if it fails, then at least you failed fast and, you know, you don't lose your house or something like that. So it's, um, it's such a cool platform and the community is just awesome. So shout out to the monkeys and Kickstarter. Right. And you, you told me off, offline that you you can't just go on there and say hey here's my here's my spaceship uh, join my Kickstarter you kind of have to have a following to begin with otherwise who's going to find you and who's going to be interested in in pre-ordering um, a, a a stoic mat the stoic mat is kind of this uneven surface that you're standing on like I like standing on a pebble mat I think this yeah, yeah. is a really cool idea uh, but tell me what uh, where that invention come from. So we did for the Monkey 360 campaign, there's a scene where in the morning I'm doing my like kind of morning routine where I'm reading Marcus Aurelius meditations, kind of I'm taking an ice bath. I'm doing all these like quote unquote stoic things. And we just thought it'd be fun to like stand on a bed of nails. So essentially we built like a pull-up bar and then we, it was real bed of nails. So I'm hanging from this pull-up bar and just barely kind of lowering myself onto it for just, you know, a fun scene in the video. and. David, who's my monkey partner, co-founder, he comes up to me one day, hey man, what if we did like this bed and nails standing mat? And I said, yeah, that'd be rad. But what if we also did this kind of natural surface 
standing mat. So essentially the, what Stoic is, is it's a modular gym for your feet. So there's a bunch of different surfaces. We have forest floor, river rock, bed of nails. There are these uneven surfaces and then there's a balance beam in between. So you can kind of, I'm standing on it right now. You're kind of like, you're standing in a much more engaged way where I'm just kind of gripping at the ground a little more. I'm shifting my weight a little bit more. And um, I just, I don't have that like end of the day fatigue that I get from just, you know, a flat, hard surface essentially. So it's, it's been awesome. I can't wait to get it out. We should have those hopefully like April, May, this 2021. Oh yeah. That's a huge deal for your proprioception balance, uh, working the stabilizer muscles throughout the lower body. And the benefits are fantastic. Katie Bowman talks about this a lot. She's been promoting the pebble mat and things like that for years and move your DNA and other books. And oh my gosh, all that stuff is, it really makes the stand-up desk experience uh, much more fun. I have one of those um, balance, it's like a, a, a round board that you, know, you have to balance on to make it straight. Um, so I like standing on that or, or tipping it backwards and stretching the calves. But um, just the... Uh, the variation is, I think, Katie's main point that she makes, that you don't have to stand on this thing all day long in one spot, and that's kind of weird, it's uneven, but you might be sitting down uh, in the next hour and then back up onto the stoic board, and uh, that's what's really cool. Or maybe reaching for a fitness device like the 360 ball hanging off the door, and then we're talking about a really varied and active and uh, you know stimulatory day for uh, the, the, the cells throughout the body that perceive balance and awareness of space. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think I've been a big fan of KD for a long time. So yeah, it was just something that we had this kind of, like, it's kind of a weird idea if you think about it. Like if we, we literally, to make it, David and I, we literally hot glued rocks and sticks, branches, ferns from. <laughs> it's, we got to uh, see a picture of the original one. Yeah, put it on, I put it on a, Instagram a, or something. Oh, for sure. No, we have, we, we have it. And we, we essentially, we hot glued them, packed them, we shipped them to Taiwan where that's where the factory is. They 3D scanned it. And then you know, I got what I'm standing on here. So it's definitely a little bit out there, but it's really cool. And my just, my feet feel just, I just feel better after standing all day. And it's, you know, Katie's point of like, well, if you're standing in the same position all day, you're still still. So it kind of adds this like active standing element, I think, into folks that are kind of already a standing desk or, you know, maybe you're working way there, but I'm, I'm really excited. Oh yeah. That one's going to be a sensation. This is so, such an exciting path you're on. I mean, so you, um, you, you got into this on the heels of this long devotion to athletics and fitness and, and coaching CrossFit and all that. And then just one day you had the idea for um, the the, um, the original. It was a, a kind of a portable pull-up bar, bar. Yeah, I mean the idea really. So I was a college athlete, and then I was a I was a wilderness ranger in 2007. So I was up in um, Sequoia National Forest, so kind of up the Kern River area outside of Bakersfield um, in California. But I was a wilderness ranger. I was still in school, and I. I built this like kind of Rocky four style wild gym out in the woods. I'd like squat logs, lift rocks, do pull-ups off branches. Oh, is that the video? Uh, yeah. That's, that I think I showed one? That. Okay. That, yeah. So that's on YouTube people. This is, this is fun stuff. What's the title of the video? 
I think it's like pre- outdoor wilderness gym or something. Yeah, I can. I hear it. It's like I can send you the link, but um, yeah, I, I was really into. Uh, I was really into the survival shows on Discovery at the time, so I did a lot of filming when I was out there. But essentially, we I had this experience out working in the wilderness, and it was such a just you know I was twenty twenty one at the time. It was such kind of like that life changing, defining time in in my life. And when I went back to school from my senior year, I ended up. I never started or I just rode the bench basically my whole athletic career. And I ended up starting and getting a scholarship to come back like an additional post-grad year, which was awesome. But that experience was kind of this catalyst that David and I had for trying to create a company around fitness and the outdoors. And our first rendition of that was called Wild Man Revivals. This was like 2011, totally crashed and burned. Just It was essentially like outdoor fitness retreats. Uh, they were going to be in Montana and just, you know, we just, it crashed and burned. It was a cool idea, but it never took flight. We kind of took some time off for a couple of years. And then David was in grad school out here in Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, we tried another concept called the wild gym, which was essentially like these outdoor gyms, like calisthenics gyms, like they're all over New York, things like that. They were, they were that concept, but with more of a wild twist. So we were using like more natural um, ingredients, I guess. So it was like rocks, wood, or at least things that looked like wood to give it kind of this more natural, wild aesthetic. And it was essentially like an outdoor kind of CrossFit slash calisthenics park. It sounds cool. I like it. It was rad. I mean, we we won business competitions. We were going to put one in Fort Collins. We had so much momentum, but it's a horrible business model to be selling to like municipalities and schools and things like that. I think I think it'd be a great nonprofit. So, anyone that wants to start that, hit me up. Or if you want to, I think it'd be so much fun to have these. It's like, why aren't there more of these just simple things that allow you? You know, you're on a run or jog or hike. You can stop at the park, bust out a few pull ups. I know. I feel like it's really common in cities, but not so much out here at least. So anyways, that crashed and burned. And we'd had this concept of, well, if we can't do these huge installations, maybe we create something that people could bring with them into the wild. So that was the original monkey bar. So it's a super small thing, cool products. People liked it, but it, it was a little like technical to adjust. Like the adjuster, it's this custom thing. It just, it wasn't super intuitive unless you were maybe like a rock climber. So then we released Monkey Bars 2 as a kind of incremental improvement on that concept. That did pretty well. And then Pocket Monkey, I think, was like where we really started to hit our stride of like, okay, this thing, Pocket Monkey is essentially like a tiny strap system. It pretty much literally fits in your pocket. You can toss over a door or there's an outdoor anchor. You can go for a run, get a little body weight workout in. And unfortunately, we're sold out of those. There's more coming in spring 2021 though. So stand by. And then for 360 specifically, so that came, that concept came from paddleboarding actually. So it's that, that stroking core flexion action. It's just every time I paddleboard, I was like, gosh, this is such a good workout. And so how could we create something that kind of mimicked that motion that was simple, easy to use. And that is kind of where that first spark for 360 came and it grew into to what you have now. So it's been a journey. Yeah, and I guess this year with people forced out of the gyms and into their homes to work out, 
it's probably good timing to be uh, selling home-based fitness apparatus. Oh, yeah. I mean, we... I, I, I always preface this by I really wish it was for a different reason because it's just the whole thing is such a bummer. But, you know, we sold out of pocket monkeys in March. We, we actually, we were really concerned because the supply chains were shutting down and it was like, how are we going to survive this? And then there was like that weekend here in the States where it just blew up. And uh, yeah, we, we sold out within a couple of weeks and unfortunately we've been sold out since then. But um, yeah, it's, um, if you're in the fitness industry now, it's like, it's certainly a demand. That's for sure. What do you think uh, the future will be? Uh, we're going to see a, um, a shift in our society's approach to fitness overall. When, when everything's, let's say, over with and back to normal, if there ever is going to be a back to normal. Yeah, that's, I think my, if you would have asked me that maybe a couple months ago, I would have said, oh yeah, people are never going to go back. Gyms will never be the same. It's just, everyone's going to work out from home. I think it might be kind of a blend now where people are so sick of being kind of isolated or at least not being able to interact in the same way that there might be this backlash where more people than ever go to the gym. But, you know, I think that time could be a few years out still, unfortunately. So yeah, I, I think short-term, more home-based, more outside, more like individual. Long-term, I could see this kind of backswing into these more social situations like a gym or running club, whatever. Yeah, I think it kind of illuminates um, what the purpose of some of these, uh, you know, foundations of our, our lifestyle are, such as going to the gym and that social aspect is is huge that community aspect the 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 motivating um sense that you walk through the door that you get at least i get when i walk in there i know everyone's getting down to business and it's so easy to go and put my body through the motions much easier than let's say at home where i'm already a pretty motivated guy i prioritize fitness so i'll get the workout done but i'll be telling myself a story in my head the whole time, like, uh, maybe I should do it later. I'm kind of busy. I should probably get to my, my emails, you know, but when you're in the gym, you're there and the camaraderie and all that stuff is huge. But, um, I, I feel like we're going to, you know, hit a, a hybrid mode where you also, everyone also has an opportunity to do these miniature workouts. We call micro workouts that we've talked about a lot together uh, at home. And so you, you blend that in with these forays to the gym or to the golf course or whatever, where you're, you're going for the full experience, but you also have this, uh, this in-between way that's not so logistically challenging. Right, right. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, my wife's a yoga teacher and she actually, she still goes to the gym regularly. She's probably there right now. But um yeah, I think there's something, there are those like kind of, what would be the right word? There's these other elements to things like going to a gym, meeting up with the group, the intangibles that, you know, maybe, maybe there's a little more importance than those than we realize. And this is kind of illuminating that. So you talked about your athletic background. Um, I found out you went to the, the one of the ultimate powerhouse high schools <laughs> of all time. De La Salle, who had the record for the longest football winning streak in the country, right? For yeah, they, they won every game for years and years. It was crazy. Yeah, it was my uh, so my senior year. I didn't. I played football my freshman year, um, but I actually played ice hockey and lacrosse. Which for a kid in California, 
a bit unusual. But yeah, my my senior year was kind of, I think the last year of the quote unquote streak, but it was, I think it was 13 years or something like that. And um, it was fun. It was a cool, it was a, I, I, it was a great environment for me just at the time. You know, I was so into sports and athletics and all that. It was just such a perfect environment. And I think, I think one thing, those of us that weren't in the varsity football program, what we didn't realize is those guys trained. We, we thought they just trained their asses off all day, all the time, which, which they did, but there was, they had an excellent strength coach and they, they did a really good job of not burning themselves out. So I think the outsiders looking in are like, these guys just outwork everyone. They just work so hard, but they did it in a very smart, non-exhaustive way. So I think that had a, a, a big impact on why they were so successful. Yeah, I also enjoyed reading about uh, Luducer. Is that how you say his name? Oh, yeah, Latticer. Yeah. Latticer. Yeah, and yeah. he had sort of an evolved approach to coaching high school football, if you want to put it politely, where most of it's, you know, these coaches just uh, are, are screaming at the kids. They're obsessed with winning. And, you know, it's kind of a strange environment. And he seemed like he had a more holistic approach where he wanted them to, you know, be like sort of in the John Wooden mode of, you know, gr- growing up and being good character people and sportsmanlike and all that kind of stuff and not not taunting and swaggering when they won their 238th game in a row. They're just going there and getting down to business. But in your case, you know, being in that, you know, rigorous athletic environment, it's a private school, they're, they're very excel in all the different sports. And that launched you on a path where you had a dream of uh, performing in college too. So tell us about your next step in your athletics. Yeah, so I... Uh... So I played lacrosse in college at Georgetown and my freshman year in high school. So De La Salle, that was the first year we ever had a lacrosse team. So it was kind of all the guys that didn't make the basketball team, didn't play football. It was just kind of, we were like almost all the rejects, honestly, because, you know, the athletics were so competitive there. And I also, I played ice hockey and um, at a pretty high level. So it was a, an easy transition for me, but I, I got into school back in DC and I didn't get recruited or anything like that, but I walked on my freshman year and, you know, there was quite a few walk-ons at the beginning and they just, each, each practice, there was less and less and less. And I was finally the last one. And I remember they called me in one day and said, they would call me Vinny. Hey, Vinny, uh, we think you can help us out this year. So we're going to, you're not going to be on the team, but we want you to keep training and come out to some practices. So I'm like, okay, sweet. That sounds good to me. The guy that played my position was like an All-American, one of the best in the country. So it's not like I was going to be in the games anyways. So what I didn't really realize was I wasn't really in the program. I was like this weird kind of ancillary guy that I would go out to practices occasionally. They'd call me or email me. I'd go out my high school gear. Everyone's in their fresh you know, Nike cleats, fresh equipment, new sticks, all that. I'm in my high school stuff, just sticking out like a sore thumb. And I'd just get beat up on for a couple hours and then get sent back my way to the dorms. So I did that for a year. And then I also just trained my ass off in the weight room and just, I got put on some weight, got just quite a bit stronger. We had a great strength coach. And then uh, the next year I made the team and just essentially rode the bench until a few games into my senior year. And that was after I'd spent that summer in the wilderness. So, you know, I'm hiking five to 15 miles a day at altitude, up and down. And I I was also training. So once I realized I was going to be spending this 
essentially the entire summer in the backcountry, I immediately went to like, okay, well, how am I going to maintain my summer off-season, off-season, excuse me, training program? So I went out there and like I had mentioned, built this kind of like rudimentary weight room. So I'd hike all day, do trail work, cutting out trees, um, you know, hiking peaks, doing all kinds of just general backcountry wilderness ranger work. And like then Rocky I, Balboa, yeah. man. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're going to go back to the battlefield with the fancy gear. You're getting exactly. super strong out there. Yeah. So it's just like this accumulated volume was huge. Plus doing strength work on top of it, a little more specific. And uh, when I went, when I came back to school, I was just, it was definitely in the best shape of my life and, you know, it, it paid off. So I got to kind of have this mini, like, like Rudy experience, I guess, where I went from essentially no one ever heard me. Who the hell is this guy to having, you know, a, a pretty successful um, kind of season and a half. So it was fun. It was a really cool way to finish school. And uh, after that, I went and fought fire for two seasons up in Montana, which was awesome. Just so much fun. Just getting to stay in that team environment and be outside, do this physical work, travel the country. And um, we actually, the first fires I went on were actually in California in 2008, which was gnarly, um, but also mm-hmm. super fun. So I did that for two seasons. And then I was a wilderness ranger for three seasons before kind of transitioning fully to CrossFit, strength conditioning and all that. And um, I've been on Colorado since 2013. So back to that, that freshman kid who walks on, all the other ones get discouraged and go away. They don't even, uh, they don't even have the, uh, the, the charity to give you the proper gear, but you're hanging around there the whole season. That, that must've been kind of a extraordinary experience and also something for the coaches to observe. Like, I mean, what, what's this kid doing? He's still coming and, and taking a beating every day. Yeah. It, it wasn't like I went to, I wasn't there every day, but I would get called in for practice as like kind of a, a special dummy player. Cause I, I had a kind of specialized position, but I was always in the weight room and I was kind of like always lurking around the team, you know? So I, I wasn't necessarily like good friends with anyone on the team. Cause I was just kind of this weirdo from California, like lurking on the outskirts, you know, trying to like scrape my way in. So even once I, even once I was actually like an official member, I, I just think there was um, a little bit of like the East coast, West coast cultural differences that, you know, I, some of my best friends are from, from uh, playing on the team, but there's just, it took a little bit of time to kind of assimilate, I guess. Yeah. They're not pulling many recruits from the West coast because there's not that many uh, schools that even feel the team I, I can I imagine and, and lacrosse is huge on the east coast and I know there's um, there's some pretty prominent programs uh, out here on the west uh, my, my friend's kid is uh, playing uh, he, he played in the bay area and he went off to play at a at a prominent school so it's there but yeah that you must have been like the um, you know the outlier yeah just yeah it was um looking back it's like man it was it was one of those things where it's like, I really had to turn off that mental switch of like, I'm definitely not necessarily wanted here right now, but I'm going to come anyways, you know? So it was, it was, I think it was more of a mental thing than physical, you know? So, but it worked out. 
And I mean, you were pretty young to be able to, you know, reason with these philosophical, um, you know, crossroads there, but you kept going. What do you think was different about you than let's say the other walk-ons that went for, uh, went for a little foray and then just bailed? I think, I think I just believed I could compete at the, I knew, I guess I knew with enough time, I had the work ethic to kind of build myself up to compete at that level. And it was kind of like what happened the very first, the very first practice tryout, whatever, um, went out on the field. It was the guy that played my position. We kind of went head to head and I smoked him and the whole sidelines going like, ah, you know, freaking out. I never, that never happened again. But that initial moment was like, I think it kind of, um, surprised everyone to say the least. And what that showed me was like, there's at least like the slightest bit of possibility that I can hang with these guys. And that, that, that was enough motivation and encouragement to just be like, okay, well I can do this. I just gotta, I know it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be this like incremental process of just consistently showing up and trying to consistently get better, stronger, faster, improve my skills just over. I I knew I had essentially a year to do that. So that's what I did. I just dedicated to, you know, training consistently, working on my skills consistently. And the next year, like I said, things worked out. Yeah. Wow. That's a beautiful story. And those elements that are so important, I think, you know, we, we might be living in an age where we're getting puffed up with a lot of hype and with the, you know, the, the social media and the gurus and the, the messaging, especially that, uh, you know, people in that age group get where they're trying to form their identity and, and, and pursue their calling or even at any age where people are saying, you know, don't, don't work for the white man. It's, it's ridiculous to be stuck in a, Joe Rogan says that every third show, you know, like it's, it's a pathetic life to, to live and, and dwindle and, you know, you go for your dreams and, and take risks and all that. But I think that message can get distorted sometimes where people get sort of deluded about, um, how much work it's going to take to be an entrepreneur running your own business or even a kid, you know, trying to get a division one athletic scholarship from being a walk on. Um, it's, it's no funny business. And, you know, I feel like there's, there's a little bit of um, delusion going on where people want things really quickly to happen uh, pretty easily, not too much struggle, maybe a little, and then, you know, go on with the fairy tale life. And so, uh, you had that glimpse, which I think is a really important part of the story, where you, you smoked the starter just once, and then maybe he, you know, underestimated you, and then he brought his A game every time he faced you again. And you, but you know, when that door cracks open a little bit, where someone can, you know, you can really honestly believe deep yourself that you do have a chance here, rather than hey, I'm going to play in the NBA because I, I scored a few buckets for my, my small town high school team. That's when you're going to get slapped around and, and could have some, you know, a hugely negative experience that impacts you the rest of your life. Right, right. And I, I think I should preface this or at least add, add the note that my, my, my whole goal going into it was just to be on the team. I, it's like starting or playing, that was never even really even considered. I just want to be on the team, you know, and I think that getting that wedge in that very first day, just that tiniest bit, it just, again, it made me realize, okay, I can at least be on the team. And I just, I love being in that environment and the training and the camaraderie and just kind of having that infrastructure, I guess. So that was the entire goal. And then beyond that, it was like, 
you know, if I got to play awesome, if not, it's like, it's not going to define the rest of my life. So. Right. You take those incremental steps. And so, you know, once you got on the team, got a uniform, got to throw away your high school crap, uh, then I guess is a great time to look at uh, maybe the setting the goal of, of being a starter or taking another incremental step, but only when it's realistic, right? So um, I think that's another part is, you know, dreaming of going from walk-on to scholarship athlete and starter. Um, that, you know, that could have been um, self-defeating. Right. Yeah, it's not, I guess... I, it's not that I didn't want to, you know, be on the field for the games and all that, but it, I didn't try any less hard because I wasn't, you know, and I think a lot of guys actually just kind of, oh, uh, cause you know, you got to keep in mind, everyone on the team was an all American. Everyone was a star, you know, it's just the best of the best. And if they weren't, I think a lot of guys just kind of gave up and they didn't kind of reach their potential because of that. So, and I, I'm sure that happens a lot across the sports, but just staying like the guys that could stay hungry, even the ones that weren't necessarily the most talented, they ended up in my opinion, being the best players. Right. Yeah. I guess you'd probably, uh, apply that insight to business, um, anywhere else being, a being, a a, a father, a, a partner, you know, we have to, we have to try to bring our a game all the time instead of just sink into patterns and ruts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, the the business side now it's I, I I'll see these like competitive things come out just unexpectedly even which and I've heard you talk about this but it is I've really tried the last few years to turn I'm I'm really good at being consistent with training and just physical things I've really been trying to take that same intensity and apply it to creating whether it be content products whatever but for whatever reason it, I always I struggle with that I don't know if it's just the the nature of pounding keys all day or what, but kind of having it framed in that kind of athletic perspective has been useful for me. So thank you for that. Well, shoot, I'm, I'm trying to do the same. And it's, it's a challenge to, you know, leverage these wonderful skills that you built in one arena and apply them to the other one. And I wish I could, you know, we were talking about my morning routine on your show and I'm so proud of it. And I tell people every single day I get down on the ground, I do this core strengthening, mobility, flexibility uh, sequence, and it founds, it forms the foundation of my, my fitness and helps me boost my performance in, in the proper workouts. But it's like, am I that consistent and disciplined with turning off my email inbox when I'm supposed to be finishing a book? The answer is no, I'm, I'm a sorry ass and I get distracted and pulled away. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking about to-do lists and prioritizing your, your workflow and, and, you know, honoring the highest expression of your talents and delegating stuff that you can. And I'm getting, you know, C minuses, D plus, B minus grades in all these areas where my fitness ambitions, I'm getting an A plus. So, you know, making that crossing that bridge over, um, it's a constant battle. And then you see some athletes where, you know, if I feel like if you're a, uh, a, you know, a grade A athlete at whatever level, if you were a high school, uh, all CIF, you know, all section or all state player, um, I would take a chance on hiring that kid uh, to work in my warehouse for my large fictional business, just because of what they brought. They brought the heat on the football field or any kid who graduated from Leducer's program at, at, at De La Self. I saw that on the resume. I'd be like, oh, okay, well, forget the interview. Let's go have you working on the, the boxes in the corner there because you know what this 
person's been through. But then a lot of people can't come close to leveraging that. And they have train wreck life in, in one area where they're, they're setting records in the gym, but they're you know, mean to their wife when they get home. Oh, absolutely. What's interesting about Latticer is he was a religion teacher at school. He was like, he was like this dark wizard walking around campus, very kind of solemn in nature, very like, you never saw him get super mad. You never saw him get super happy, just very kind of even keel. And there's, there's a book actually, highly recommend it. It's called When the Game Stands Tall. It's by Neil Hayes. And it really, it talks about, it really talks about more of kind of the philosophical thoughts and elements to that team and of Latticer and how he kind of cultivated. It was really like, I think love's actually the most accurate word. It was really this culture of love and accountability to each other and trying to do your best because you cared for your team. So it's, um, it's not this like bloodthirsty kill athletic mentality. It was, it was really based around love, which is um, probably not what you'd expect. Not for 239 wins in a row, whatever it was. Oh, good stuff. All right. And um, so you finished this college athletic experience. And then, you know, you had all these, these goals, this focus. And it sounds like you turned it toward uh, some of these uh, extreme wilderness feats and challenges. So I want to hear about the rim to rim to rim, climbing El Capitan, hiking the, the, the John Muir Trail. Uh, for those of us who can live vicariously, um, boy, it'd be, be fun to hear about that stuff. Sure. Yeah. I, um, so I did a race and I was living in Montana. This is while I was firefighting. I did a race in Montana called the Glacier Challenge and it was 50, five zero, 50 total miles combined with like some biking, some mountain biking, some canoeing, some kayaking, some running. And that just like, it kicked my ass because I'd never done anything close to that length. You know, I was always, you know, I was a field athlete. And then when I was a wilderness ranger, a buddy of mine, who's a, he's one of the chief, he's one of the top rangers now in Yosemite. He's like bucking people off the side of El Cap in a helicopter. But uh, he's like, he's like, hey, you should do this hike this one day. It's like 34 miles out and back. And I'd been hiking all summer and, you know, I'd maybe done 15 or 20 in a day, but nothing close to that. So I did this huge hike. It was 34 miles. Took like maybe 11, 12 hours, something like that. And I remember finishing and being like, oh, it wasn't that bad. Like I walked the whole thing, just good pace, no big deal. And then fast forward to now, I, I got kind of into the ultra scene, did the rim to rim to rim and to train for those rim to rim to rim specifically i had we just had our daughter so just time i couldn't go out and do these like all day training runs that i'd done previously for these other ultras so essentially what i did was like micro workouts throughout the day so i'd throw on my weight vest throw my daughter in the stroller go for a three mile walk around the neighborhood stop do pull-ups dips some core stuff at the little calisthenics park on the way got a lot of weird looks from the neighbors because it's like a very tactical looking best. But anyway, so I would do that. I would just hold her, walk around the little courtyard in front. And I was able to kind of accumulate and aggregate this volume that I thought was appropriate for rim to rim to rim. And then as far as like long run training, I would do, instead of doing like, you know, 20, 25 mile days, I would just cluster two or three days in a row of like 10 to 15 miles. So I, I think the longest I ran for that was 15 miles. 
the longest like single day training run was 15. And then, you know, I was doing plenty of body weight training. I was doing like these focused strength sessions. That's always been important to me. Just that having that kind of solid chassis is how I describe it. Like just, I was doing a lot of deadlifts, a lot of weighted squats, Olympic weightlifting. That's just something I've always felt has added to added to just being a robust athlete for something like that, especially the Grand Canyon. There's so much vert that I think for me personally, I needed that strength. So we had a group of like a dozen people. We went out three in the morning, 3 a.m. in the morning. We start down the Bright Angel Trail. Half a mile into it, I popped my ankle, stepped on a rock ankle. Oh, and I just, I couldn't believe it. I'd spent this whole year training for this thing. I had all these friends from all over the country meet us there. And I had, I had, I had to pull the shoot, man. I had to hike out. So fortunately it wasn't like a horrible sprain, but it just, it wasn't something you're going to do 50 miles in the Grand Canyon where you need to be self-sufficient. So I took a month or so and just rehabbed and was able to go back a month later. And I ended up doing it essentially alone. It was a, it was a, an interesting experience. So you but, started, uh, you started 3am and how long does this thing take? You're going from the South Rim down to the bottom, up to the North Rim, down to the bottom and back, back to where you started is the, this is a, a classic for those in the endurance scene. It's kind of a classic achievement, a rim to rim to rim, they call it. Right. So I'm not a very fast endurance athlete. I think I'm more of that kind of, I think my muscle fiber type is that hybrid of strength power and then not so heavy on the endurance, which makes sense because all the sports I played were kind of that more sprint based. And actually my parents did a genetic test and I think it came back as like elite power lifters or something like that. I've never done mine personally, but theirs came back. So I would assume I'm at least similar to what they have, but I'm, just, I'm not a fast endurance athlete. So I think it took me, it was like a 17 hour day. I mean, it was full on. And I, you know, I stopped a lot. I rested quite a bit. But when, when, we, when we went that first time, I think the fastest guy did it in, I want to say 12-ish hours. And, you know, there's guys that do it in, I think, five or six hours. It's just, just crazy fast. So, but it's the Grand Canyon, it's the vertical, man. Just like even going downhill trying to run, at least from the north rim back down to the rivers, like, it's just brutal. So you end up hiking quite a bit. And then you actually, I ended up running more of the flats and it was pretty hot when I went, this was mid May. So I was stopping and jumping in the Creek, which was fortunately there. And, uh, for me, these things, it's always been about doing it versus like how fast can I do it? Um, so I'm just training in a way and approaching these things in a way where it's more about completion versus like performance. And that's just the reality where I'm at in life. For El Cap, I, I failed. I guess thinking about this, I fail at these things a lot before they actually get completed. I think El Cap, it took me like three or four tries till we actually topped out. And the final, the final push took us like we climbed for 31 hours straight. We just, we kind of put as much food and water as we could in packs and just, we started at like four in the afternoon and climbed through the night, climbed the whole next day. And then we topped out at around I think it was like 1230 in the morning we topped out and this was in May. So it was pretty cold. There's still quite a bit of snow up on top. This is in Yosemite. And my partner wakes me up. We, we kind of got to the top, got water. 
And then we didn't have tents or anything. So we just kind of like flaked out the ropes and laid on those just as a little bit of insulation from the ground. <laughs> and, uh, of course you don't have a tent because you're yeah. not lugging it up the wall. No way, Oh my man. gosh. No way. So we, uh, he woke me up, you know, it was maybe three in the morning at this point. I said, hey man, I'm, I'm, I think I'm hypothermic. I need to go. So instead of, you know, what would take maybe like an hour at a casual pace, there's a rappel route where it takes you right back to the base. We hiked like 10 miles around. We're out of food. We're drinking water just straight from the creek, which we both ended up getting Giardia, by the way, which is a bummer. So we ended up hiking all through the night, through the snow. And it turned like already an epic day into like an extra epic day. So that was a... So you went 31 hours straight climbing, slept for a couple few... And then had to hike down. And then we hiked down like 10 miles. I, it's, I'll never forget. I just, I was so exhausted at one point. There was this little dry patch of pine needles. I just like, hey man, I need to take a nap. And hit, I hit the ground and just was out. I've ne- I, n- never before, never since have I ever fallen asleep like that. I was just at that physical limit. But yeah, you it was awesome. That, um, you heard of that female ultra runner that... Uh, is extraordinary. She beat everybody, including all the men, in the in the um, the two hundred mile race in Utah. I forget her name. Uh, is it but, Courtney DeWalter? I don't know, but she um, uh, she announced to her pacer that she needed to take a nap, and usually she goes straight through, and that's one of her advantages. And um, you know, she she lay down. And then she woke up one minute later, the pacer timed the nap, you know, I wanted to keep track of all this and she felt great. She goes, wow, how long, how long was I, how long was I out? And he said, you were out one minute. She's like, oh, I feel fine. Let's go. (laughs) So I think when that brain is, is all the way, all the way gone, it's, it's probably true that if a very, very short nap can just reset and then, you know, I don't know, how long was your nap? I, I think it was maybe 10 minutes or something like that. I just remember waking up. I woke up because it was cold. I woke up shivering. And it's like, okay, we got to go. Wow. And then we jetted out of there. So yeah, it was a wild experience. It, um, I guess you didn't you know, time your, you didn't time your start time of 4 PM. You know, ideally you'd get up there, uh, you know, at, at nine in the morning and then, you know, have a picnic and hike down. But I guess you didn't know how long everything would take. We knew it was going to take us at least 24 hours. So we figured like it'd be better to start in the afternoon, go through the areas that we were a little more familiar with in the dark, and then, you know, be higher up, have kind of all day to top out, which almost worked. But I'm actually, I'm hoping to go back this spring with them. It's a gentleman named Hans Flooring Tahoe resident, actually. He's held the speed record on the nose with like guys like Alex Honnold and he's probably held the record like, I don't know, at least a dozen times. And he's a, he's a wild man doing wild things. So hopefully I, he's kind of a, I guess a rock climbing hero of mine. So I'm hoping to get on the rope with him in 2021. Oh yeah. I remember when he first broke the record was over 20 years ago. We were, we were oh, yeah. sponsoring him uh, oh, no. with, with Cytomax located mm. in Concord, California, down the street from, oh, from okay. De La Salle. Now the show's coming full circle, people, <laughs> right, especially right. if you don't know any of these strange references. But interestingly on El Cap, um, I mean, we're familiar with, you know, uh, 
I'm familiar with the speed record set by Hans Florin back when uh, in four or five hours. And then when we saw Free Solo, Alex Honnold uh, finished in four hours. And so obviously Alex is taking less time because he doesn't have to deal with the ropes and the equipment. But take me through you know, uh, uh, you know, an ascent with the proper gear rather than being the, the Spider-Man who's going to fall to his death if he makes one false move. It's a lot more logistically challenging than just uh, finding a place to put your foot and climbing because you got to be working with a partner, setting ropes. Uh, how does it take that long? And what are, you, what are you doing with all those hours? Right. So the, the first few times that we failed, we were doing kind of a traditional big wall style where you're, you're you're, we, we camped on the wall. We actually slept on a ledge about halfway up. The problem with that is you're, you're carrying this like 80 pound bag that you have to essentially climb a pitch. So that's roughly a rope length. So you're climbing this pitch, you're putting in gear for protection as you go. So if you fall, the gear will catch your fall with the rope. So you would, the leader would climb the pitch. They get to an anchor, they fix the rope or tie it off essentially to the anchor. Then the leader has to haul this 80 pound bag up, up a vertical wall or what's actually the problem on El Cap is the lower part of the nose, which is the kind of standard route, the easiest route. It's not quite vertical. So the, there's a ton of friction against the bag when it's its heaviest. So it's actually what's easier the, to haul. What's in the bag? The, the food and the sleeping bags? There's or? A, so water is probably the heaviest thing actually. Huh. So you've got a ton of water, you've got food, sleeping bags sleeping pad, a poop tube, very important. And um, trying to think what else, probably an extra rope, maybe some extra gear. You know, you try and be as minimalist as possible, but you know, if you're, if you're playing on spending three to five days up there, it's like you need a decent amount of stuff. So, um, so the, the route is set with uh, anchors, you call them, right? And that's mm-hmm. some someone back when in the in the 60s or whatever drilled into the rock and made a nice uh, holder for your your clips where you clip the rope. And so I guess the route is set, but each new climber has to put their own uh, ropes in there as as you ascend. And so I guess this is what takes all day. Exactly. Yeah. So we're you know you're having to. It's not like it's not like when Honold soloed. He's climbing exceptionally fast. It's just that he doesn't have to stop. Whereas we're constantly stopping because you have to take out gear, you have to haul the bag. There's, it's just like this snowball effect. But so that that's kind of the big wall style where you're hauling the bag, you're camping on the side of the cliff face, which is really fun actually. That was one of the coolest nights of my life. Actually, was sleeping up there. It's called El Cap Tower. Waking up in the morning and it's you know beautiful sunny Yosemite. It's just such a wild uh, experience. But when we actually did it when we completed it we just we went ultralight so we had like a probably a little 20 liter kind of nylon sack backpack with just i think i had four liters of water and just a bunch of bars essentially and just you know we essentially were out of food and water for a day more or less and just had to kind of suffer through the the top part of it but you know people i'm I'm not that great of a climber there's guys that do it in 12 hours no problem and the fastest time now is under two hours by Alex Honnold and Tommy Codwell. So they broke the two hour threshold, which is just, it's incredible. So they are just, I mean, they're not rushing through any of the, um, the safety measures. They have to, they have to clip in 
but I guess they're probably taking way more risks than Alex did without rope. And so they might be falling seven times and then getting back on because they're, they're climbing like, 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 like monkeys, uh, so to speak. It's definitely a safety third scenario where it's speed <laughs> style safety. <laughs> I mean, the, the way like, so when Honold and Tony Caldwell set the speed record, like very, very, very few climbers would do it in that style. I mean, they're risking huge falls. And a lot of times they're in situations where they're in a death fall situation, even though they have a rope on, they're just, they're kind of whittling down the safety factor to such a thin razor sharp margin that there's tons of situations where it's like, if they fell, they're going to, there's a high likelihood they could die for sure. Oh, so they're putting in fewer um, and more distant uh, free fall options there, as opposed to the person with the 80 pound pack, you're probably clipping into every single, um, every single hold, which, which come what, what how, how often are those things uh, there on the rock? So, so you can bring, um, they're like these little aluminum nuts that you can wedge into the crack. And then there's another thing called a cam, which you might've seen has the triggers. So we brought, gosh, we probably had like 20 pieces of protection. So we can essentially put in gear every five to 10 feet. So the biggest fall I would ever take is maybe 10, 15 feet, which I did actually take a couple of <laughs> nice falls. And I screamed like, I would never want anyone to hear me. I mean, you know? some, some of these, you're, you're just looking down 2000 feet, right? When you fall, I mean, this is, that, that can't be too fun, even though the rope catches you. Yeah. It's uh, at the top, actually, it's, it's, the bottom is a little bit more dangerous because it's not, as steep. So if you fall, you actually have the potential of hitting the rock, but at the top it's vertical or overhanging. So you're essentially falling into air, which is what you want, but it's just, man, it's uh, it's not a comfortable feeling to say the least. So if a novice went out there uh, on a dare and, you know, was with an experienced climber, do you think someone could do it out of the blue or do you have to have some pretty good climbing skills and knowledge or how do you prepare for something like that? There's definitely some just technical, like there's kind of like this base level of technical knots and just, just systems. I think you would, someone would need to know, but you know, Hans has taken up like super novices and you know, he's climbed the nose over a hundred times. So if you're going to do it with someone, he's for sure who you'd want to do it with just because he knows every little nook and cranny of that route. But I mean, I wouldn't want to climb with someone that, you know, hadn't done something comparable or at least I felt could do it, you know, just, and that's just me. Cause I'm, again, I'm, I'm not Hans. I'm not Honold. I'm not Tony Caldwell, but from like a fitness standpoint, you could climb the nose with not, you don't need to be like crazy fit. Cause the way, the way it's typically done is this, the person that goes up second. So the leader's actually climbing. They're putting in gear and climbing. The second person is using what are called Jumars, which they're essentially these mechanical ascenders that clip to the rope. You slide them up and they don't pull down. So you're essentially like climbing up the rope with these ascenders and they're stirrups for your feet. So it's not like you're doing one-arm pull-ups. You're kind of like stepping up like a ladder, essentially. So it's... It's actually not that, that the Jumaring is not that difficult, especially if you can get a little bit of practice in, you know, it's just, it's not a super technical thing. It's just, there are these, these situations where it's like, 
you got to know your knots. You need to understand like the systems, I guess is the best way to describe it. Or if you unclip from something, that means you might swing 50 feet and slam into a ledge. There's, just, there's all these little things you constantly have to be evaluating. And you know, someone that has, doesn't have you know, a solid base of just general climbing wouldn't necessarily recognize. So the attempts that didn't succeed, what happened on those occasions? And what do you do about it? You just thumb your, stick your thumb out for a helicopter ride from your, your ranger buddy, or you have to go all the way back down? And what, what, yeah, was the, so, what was the turnaround point? Like, what does that look like? So we, the first time I went, my buddy Butts, we had slept on El Cap Tower. We climbed. It took us way longer than we thought. We had the huge heavy bag. We slept on the ledge, which was awesome. But we woke up in the morning. We dropped some kind of critical gear. And by we, he did. Dropped off the, off the <laughs> earth? We, we dropped I mean, like there, there was a special, it's called a cam hook we dropped. And then we'd also <laughs> somehow left a rope. You need a, something important is you need these lower out ropes because there's these situations where you're in a pendulum situation where, where the anchor is, the rope is coming off maybe like 45 degrees. So if you just kind of jump off, you're going to swing and get the full effect of gravity. Whereas what the way you mitigate that is you use a lower outline. So you're essentially like slowly lowering yourself out with this additional rope. And that we'd left on a ledge. So we just, we were kind of a shit show, man. We just, we weren't as prepared as we could have been. But so we're sitting, we're about halfway up we're about 1,500 feet up. It's a 3,000-foot route. So we're pretty much halfway exactly. We're sitting on this two-foot-wide ledge. This gal and her partner come flying by this. They were climbing it in like 10 hours. And uh, we're just sitting there feeling bad about ourselves. And eventually, we're just like, hey, we got to repel. So repelling off El Cap is for sure the scariest thing I've ever done. It's just you're, you're just in this sea of granite on two bolts that are... They're, they're solid. They're strong. They're meant to be used in this way, but it's just the way you repel off El Cap, you don't just follow the line back down or the route back down. You're, you're kind of in this just ocean of granite. There's just nothing. It's vertical. It's smooth. Is this a actual repel route? For it is a route. It would, yeah, it would be like, yeah, it's like an established repel route yeah. for, for the nose specifically, but it's just, you're so exposed out there and repelling is you don't really, there's no chance for mistakes or there's no option for mistakes. Whereas like, you know, when you're lead climbing, when you're rock climbing, you can fall and you have 20 pieces of gear below you that, you know, even if one fails, you're, it's likely you're going to be fine. Whereas repelling, it's like, you can't screw up or else you're dead. You wrap off the end of your rope, you know, you don't clip into an anchor properly. Just weird repelling is what kills way more climbers than like just falling climbing. So it's just a very tenuous situation. And then you add on this extra 80 pound bag that you essentially have to clip to your harness. And it's oh, just- Oh, why don't you just leave that? Forget that, man. Yeah. Like Mount oh, Everest climber, just leave it on the rock somewhere. Just leave it right, hanging. Right. Yeah, that would have been nice and just come get it the next day. Or at least, yeah, leave our base camp. But no, so we, and it takes time. You know, it took us like, gosh, when we bailed, it took like, I want to say six or seven hours to repel. And that's just, you know, being careful, taking your time. Just again, you can't make mistakes. So after that, we, uh, that was in 20, I believe that was 2015. So we, we just, we called it, called it quits. Yeah. And 
yeah. it's an incredibly long time to get back down to the ground. Yeah, it's it's not a pleasant experience. Dang. I have so much more appreciation now for for uh, anyone who's climbed it, and especially for for Alex doing the free solo. And you think about all these logistics that he's leaving behind, and and doing that. Wow, there's a lot of ways to there's a lot of ways to get up to the top. It's a huge accomplishment. Oh yeah, I uh, actually this was in 2011. I was, I actually worked in Yosemite for. It was a strange occurrence where the federal funding got cut for where I was a ranger. So I ended up going to Yosemite and spending like half the season there. It was awesome. But I was climbing with a friend. We were, it was a, it's a big route. It's, it's across the valley from El Cap. So you're, you're looking at El Capitan from where we were. It's called Middle Cathedral. But I just, I happened to look down. We're maybe two thirds of the way up. I happened to look down at Alex Honnold's like 20 feet below me fiddling with my gear because I had, it's like, hey, this thing was kind of rubbing, so I'm I'm fixing it for you. And I'm just going, oh, thanks, man, appreciate it. And I happened to be at this ledge and just kind of stepped off out of the way, and he just like like Spider Man, just kind of like cruised on by. And then he was like down below at one point. He was like all over this face. It was it was a really bizarre experience, but just seeing him up that high on that particular route, it's it made me it made me uncomfortable being in that proximity whereas he's just like you know it's just a casual day for him so um, was he roped in or was he doing his free solo practice he was just he was just soloing just, climbing, just, on a, huh? just on a casual Ooh. just yeah it was um front row seat yeah it was wild so um and i i actually was on top of el cap when him and hans did a speed lap in 20 i think it was 2011 as well yeah that was the same season so I've gotten to see him kind of up close and personal a few times, which is really cool. And there's, there's hundreds of other climbers that have, I'm sure had similar experiences, but it's, it's pretty cool to see in person and a little, uh, it just, it makes your palms sweat, man. It really does. Dang, Dan, you're living the monkey lifestyle. That's very <laughs> awesome. I think, uh, we should close with just the, the, um, the, the thing you asked me, like a, a typical day in your life of how you make this all work and um, this this huge commitment to fitness, how do you fit that into normal, everyday, busy life, dad, business operator? What I've been doing the last several months, maybe two or three months, so I, I'll wake up, I do yoga, and it could be five minutes, it could be an hour. Just kind of, it's it's all by feel, so I'll just do kind of like a sun salutation, just very simple flow, maybe some foam rolling if I'm, if I need to work out something. And then from there, I'll do either a calisthenics workout with like a pocket monkey, for example, or I'll do what I've been playing around with is this quick in the dead program by uh, Pavel strong first. So it's a very simple program. It's kettlebell swings and pushups, high power output, high intensity, but full recovery and rest. So I'll do that. And that's maybe the first hour to two hours of the day. Then what I've been doing is going for a walk. My, my program, my training is not very sexy. It's very simple. It's very like casual. I'll, I'll hike. I have a trail right out the back door here in Colorado. You get a huge view of the mountains. It's awesome. I'll listen to a podcast, like get over yourself, take notes, things like that. I'll usually do four or five miles. And then that puts me back home by Usually between nine and ten, I'll have my four four eggs, whole avocado, 
hop on the bike, head a mile down to the office, hopefully record a sweet podcast, do some monkey business, whatever. And then it's, it's kind of like a, a focused, maybe two to five hour work session. I'll try and do little movement breaks throughout the day. Then I'll head home early afternoon. This is typically between four and five. And I'll do kind of like, I'll, I'll play with my kids because my wife usually has, maybe she's teaching yoga or something. I'll, I'll play with the kids. And then I'll also, I have a, a weight rack in the garage. So I'll be playing with them. I'll bring my older one out. She helps count reps while, you know, maybe do some dips, pull-ups, squats, whatever. So it's kind of like this, this slow workout program where I'm not like rushing through something. She gets to be a part of it. I'll hold her up on the bar and she, you know, counts and all that. And then um, huge dinner, try and get into bed by, you know, nine or 10. I've been reading fiction before bed recently. The Border Trilogy, Cormac McCarthy. It's awesome. Awesome, awesome book. And there's something I, I typically was reading nonfiction, like, you know, technical training stuff or whatever, business books, but then nonfiction, it puts me in such a different sleep state than, than the sure, more, sure. Uh, you know, it's recommended so, to, to read fiction yeah. at night instead of, instead of, instead of the other stuff. Uh, yeah. I just probably for that reason that you're, you know, less stressful, you're not having to try to remember things or process it in the same way that you would reading a business book or something. Right, right. Wow, man, you, you live in yeah. the dream here. I, I love it. And, and uh, your generation, you're, you're mid-30s now? I'm 35, yeah. Yeah, so do you see sort of a, a trend among your peer group where people are, are pursuing these alternative uh, career paths and, and lifestyle practices that are so devoted to health? I mean, I, I'm hoping that there's a, a good segment of the population in, in every age group, but especially the, uh, I guess you call yourself a millennial. I forget the, the cutoff points, but um, you know, we're, we're watching crappy uh, TV series of young people frolicking and going to bars and uh, you know, you know, partying a lot through those, through those years. And now you're on a, you're on a different path. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, no, it's, gosh, I'm trying to think about what are my peers doing? And, you know, to be honest, I think as, as Joe Rogan frequently points out, I think there's a lot of people living these lives of kind of this quiet desperation where they make plenty of money. They don't, there's really no reason why they couldn't do something else, but for whatever reason, they just, they can't cross that chasm to do something different. So that being said, I think there's, definitely a lot of people that are recognizing kind of how the internet's flattened the world in a sense where, you know, it's so easy to start a podcast or have a YouTube channel or create content or, you know, talk to a factory on the other side of the world to make a product. You know, there's just the ability to communicate is, has really, I think, flattened a lot of things from a, a business perspective. So I guess I would encourage anyone like try it out. It's not that nice. Hard. Yeah, why not? Give not it a as shot. Hard as, yeah, yeah. So, how do we uh, join the monkey tribe? What do we What do we do next, man? So, you can become a monkey at, at our website is monkey.co. So, m o n k i i dot co. Typically, do most of our social media on Instagram. So, it's we're just at monkey dot co, and live wild or die podcast. That's on pretty much all the channels: Spotify, Apple. I think I've got it everywhere. So yeah, check us out, drop us a line and live a little bit wild. 
Dan Vince and everybody doing the wild thing. Thanks for a great show. Thanks for listening, everybody. Da, 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 da. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. Subscribe to our email list at bradkearns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five-star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad. It's time to be all that you can be in 23, starting with a cold plunge to get a natural boost in energy. Focus, discipline, and resilience. The plunge can provide you with all that brilliance. This is the ultimate home cold water therapy experience. A sleek, slick, custom-designed unit that gives you ready access to a cold bath of clean, filtered, circulating water that you can set to your desired temperature. Don't fool around lugging bags of ice from the supermarket for once-in-a-while action. Get the plunge so you will actually stick with your protocol and enjoy it. Visit thecoldplunge.com to learn all about this sensational product and the benefits of therapeutic cold water exposure. They'll deliver a plunge to your home for free, and then you have easy, simple setup, regular plug-in, and you're off and running. I set mine to 39. I don't spend a lot of time, but the experience is prime, and I'm focused and energized for a fantastic day and more resilient against all other forms of stress in life. Take the plunge, people, and also check out their new Rebounder Mini Trampoline to pair with plunging and optimize lymphatic function. It's all at thecoldplunge.com, and you can't lose with their generous 30-day money-back guarantee and special discount for BRAD podcast listeners using the code BRAD, thecoldplunge.com.